Zechariah chapter 3. Remember at the end of chapter 2, he talks about how they need to sing and rejoice. Don't make it a, a minimal response, but a great response because God is in the midst of his people and he extends that people group to us, the Gentiles in, in chapter 2, verse 11, that will be lumped right along with the Jewish people referring to that millennial reign. And again, he makes it clear that the Lord will take position of Judah, and then he goes on to call it the Holy Land. That indeed, the promised land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus is going to give it to the Jewish people in that millennial reign, the entirety of it. He himself will rule from Jerusalem, and he says that, and I will again choose Jerusalem. And boy, he gets fired up about it like a lion standing up, aroused. He says, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. So God is getting up and ready for action. The coming of the Lord is very near. The rapture of the church is going to take place at any time. He said, when you see the signs of the time showing, and I won't go into it today, but they are clearly evident you can know that the coming of the Lord is near. And indeed, he's aroused, he's standing up, his coming is very, very near. And in chapter 3, we have the fourth of ten visions of Zechariah. And again, Zechariah, like the book of Revelation, and Daniel and Ezekiel has some pretty far out there uh, visions. But again, they're not his visions, they're God's visions. And so God is a pretty wild and crazy guy sometimes. And he comes up with these incredible scenes, of course, speaking an incredible, powerful message as well. But very creative our Lord is. Look at you in the mirror today. Look at yourself. You'll see how creative he is. Quite a, quite a humorous God. And uh, in chapter 3 here, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, this is a fellow we're quite acquainted with in, in Haggai chapter 1 and chapter 2 we just looked at. Uh, he's Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. He's actually mentioned in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 18 and 19, but not in a favorable sense. Ezra is trying to bring the people spiritually forward and it, it's just not happening. And, and he discovers that people have intermingled and intermarried with the pagans around them. And if you know the Old Testament... That's definitely out of the question. And not only did the people do that, but his own sons had married the pagan women. And of course, when Ezra heard this, he ripped his beard out, he ripped his clothes, he, he just wept and he mourned, and, and it caused all the people to, to be broken and to mourn as well. And he promised that he would have his sons put away their wives. They didn't do it. It was, it was quite a long time. They finally, slurry, slow obedience, but they finally did obey. And so we see that he's the type of guy that is willing to compromise a long ways. He's willing to break the commandments of God. He's willing to not obey God to a very large extent. And so Joshua the high priest was not this great leader that God so desires for his people, especially the spiritual leaders. And so he's standing before the angel of the Lord. Now that word standing is in reference to his ministering, to actually serving as the high priest would give sacrifices and, and minister to the people. This is what he's talking about. So he is ministering, and I love this, it's before the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord here, as we discussed last week, I'm not going to go into it, it's actually Jesus. And I proved it last week, and, and it still refers to this, that 
there as he's ministering, he's ministering right unto Jesus. How I need to remember that. When you're singing, I hope you're not just singing, I hope you're worshiping. And as you worship, I hope you remember that it's right unto Jesus. The Bible says it's a beautiful incense unto him. In Acts chapter 13, it says they prayed and fasted that they ministered unto the Lord. And so here he is standing and he's ministering right unto Jesus. Notice who else is observing his ministry unto the Lord and unto the people. Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. Satan is also recognizing his ministry, recognizing what he's doing before the Lord, and he hates it. Guys, remember that. Satan really hates it when you minister to the Lord and to others. It says in Ephesians 6, don't forget, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Do you ever have those days where you wake up, you feel like somebody jumped on your head and beat you up and you're battered and bruised and you, you wonder if you, you should get up and take a shower and go to work or call an ambulance? It's because you probably did get beaten up. You were wrestling in the spiritual realm with the demonic host. There really is a fight going on and often our spirit can sense the wounds of that battle. And we really are fighting against that enemy and, and he hates your ministry whether it's to the body of Christ or to the Lord. The word Satan literally means adversary or opponent. Peter describes him as a roaring lion looking to see whom he can devour. And so Satan is this guy on the prowl and he's a vicious, vicious creature and he is coming after you with all the host, the demonic host uh, in the spiritual realm to try to hinder you, and he hates it. And so often we, we feel that. We start to come to church, we feel oppressed. We try to talk about the Lord to somebody, and we feel oppressed. And we're going, man, I, I feel so miserable when I try to share the Lord with somebody, or try to read my Bible, or, or try to do something for the Lord. Why? Because Satan hates it. And he's letting it be known, stop this. I don't want you to minister to people. I don't want you to talk about Jesus Christ. I don't want you to minister to the kids. I don't want you to share your faith. I don't want you to worship the Lord. And so often we sense that. We go to prayer and all of a sudden we feel the pressure. We stop praying and the oppression leaves. We start to worship and there's oppression. We stop worshiping and, and the oppression leaves. Satan's no dummy. He knows what's going on. He's trying to quench you out. And there it says he's standing at the right hand. Now this is a picture of a courtroom. We know that. In Psalms 109 verse 6 it says, let the accuser or the a prosecuting attorney, if you would, stand at the right hand. So Satan is in this heavenly scene is standing there and he is condemning, opposing. He's the prosecuting attorney with facts he believes against Joshua the high priest. Now, those who have studied the Bible, this is not an unfamiliar sight. As a matter of fact, we mentioned it last week in the book of Job, where there he was, condemning Job. Oh, well, he's only served you because you made his life so good. And, and there he uh, talked the Lord into allowing him to attack Job. And of course, that trial only turned around for much good. We see the apostle Peter, the same thing. There in Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, which is also Peter's name indeed satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat peter you are just a big giant fluffy marshmallow man there's no density in you and satan just wants to flush you right down the toilet 
And the Lord says, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. But Jesus standing there to intercede. It's not just Job. It's just not Peter. As a matter of fact, it tells us in Revelation 12.10 that that is Satan's job. He's the accuser of the brethren. That's one of the titles of Satan, who accuses us before God day and night. This is one of Satan's full-time jobs, <laughs> just to stand before God and condemn the believers, to put them down, to point out the faults in our lives, and he doesn't have to look very far, does he? But there's the Lord standing, and I love that. He is standing before them, uh, as our advocate. Look there at Romans chapter 8, if you would. Hold your finger there in Zechariah and go ahead and, and turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting there in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So it's a rhetorical question. Who's greater than God? If the greatest person in existence is for you, it doesn't really matter if somebody lesser is against you. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I mean, if he was going to spare something, it would have been his son. But if he didn't hold back his son, anything else he's to give you is going to be lesser than his son. So why would he withhold anything? If he was going to withhold it, he already would have done it. In verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who's justified. So if God is the greatest authority that there is, and he says you're justified just as if you've not sinned, it really doesn't matter if somebody else thinks otherwise. And in verse 34, who is he who condemns? Oh, we know who that is. That's Satan, sometimes ourselves, sometimes other people. But it's Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also, notice, makes intercessions for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, it talks about Jesus, who is that great high priest, that unchangeable high priest, who always lives to make intercessions for us. The Lord loves to intercede on our behalf. And turning back over to Zechariah chapter 3, that's exactly what we see there. So he's standing there in that place to condemn you. And in verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, Jesus talking, saying to that adversary, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So he says, you know what? I'm not going to disagree with you on the facts, the facts are true, but I have chosen them. I love that. Jesus said in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you. And I ordained you that you'd go and you'd bear fruit, and that fruit indeed would remain. And so he is saying here, I, I've chosen them. They're my kids. So really, we begin to get the picture here now that Joshua, remember Joshua is the name, Yahshua, God, who is our salvation. And so here's a picture of Joshua standing before Joshua. <laughs> Jesus is the Greek enunciation for Joshua, which is English. Yahshua is the Hebrew. And so 
we see here this high priest. Now, who are we? The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2 that we are, as believers, we are his holy nation and we are the royal priesthood. Every single believer is a saint, is holy, is the priest unto God. We have no more men who are priests. The Bible says all that's been taken out of the way because there's one mediator now between God and man, it says in 1 Timothy 2, and that is Jesus Christ. We have one high priest, and it's Jesus, and all of us are priests under that one high priest. And a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, it says he has washed us by his blood and made us all priests and kings unto our God. And so we, like Joshua here, are the priests being brought. And we as believers, if you indeed have put your trust in Christ, God chose you before the foundations of the world. And here he's saying that these are my people, I've chose them. I love that way the Lord talks about, describes how he chose Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, it says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. I love this. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out of a, with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So God says, I just set my love upon the Jewish people. I set my love upon Israel. They are my special treasure above all peoples, above the earth. Why? Because I chose to set my love upon them. I chose them. Not because they were something great or were going to be something great. Matter of fact, quite the opposite. But I chose them. And so in the same way, God has chosen us Gentiles, believers, in the same way and has brought us in to the household of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, also, he, it says, uh, he chose Jerusalem. Again, we've talked about that, how God is going to reign in that thousand-year millennial period from Jerusalem. And then when he makes the new heavens and the new earth, he's going to continue to reign from Jerusalem as well as from heaven. In Psalms 137, verse 5 and 6, it says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And so here he says, Satan, you're condemning somebody that I love. You're condemning somebody that I have set my love upon. You're condemning somebody that's a special treasure unto me. And I don't disagree with your facts, but he goes on to say, they are a brand plucked from the fire. Now, most of us, and I put myself in there, are a bunch of city slickers. And so, you know, we've seen a, a handful of campfires, I suppose. But you guys have, have woke up in the morning, maybe after out camping, and you look at the fire, and, and it looks like it's dead. And there's gray ash, and, and there you see some black chunks of, of wood that have sort of are all cold now. 
That's a brand. And you take that little piece of black wood that's sitting there, and it looks like it's all cold, but you take your stick and you start stirring it around, and the ash, it has no uh, fire with it, but then you turn over one of those little black embers that were there, and you turn it, and there it is. Little hot fire in the center of it, or on the back side of it there. And there you start blowing on it, maybe put some leaves on it, and there you can get the fire going from that brand. And here he's saying that's, that's who we are. <laughs> We've been burned up and burned out and, and, and we've been fried by the world and by the weakness of our flesh. But you turn it over and you know what? We're God's little black brand. We're God's and, and he still has a fire inside of us. D.L. Moody, I think, really got it right. A great preacher who, a guy was walking down the streets of Chicago and he pointed out a, a drunk in the street. And D.L. Moody said, there go I, except by the grace of God. If it wasn't for the fact that God came and got me this brand out of the fire, I would have been just like that guy right now. Isn't that the way we feel? If it wasn't for God snatching us, we would have destroyed our lives a thousand times over. We would have hurt ourselves and others continually because of the foolishness of our minds, our hearts, our sinfulness. But nevertheless, you may be looking at Joshua from your eyes, Satan. And I don't disagree with the guilt that he has. But you know what? He's mine. I've chosen him. And sure enough, you're right. He's a brand. But I have plucked him out of the fire. The fire of the world. The fire of hell. The fire of sin in a sinful way. Now notice there in verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now we read this here in the English, and we say, oh, filthy garments. And really, the English language doesn't do it justice. It's the word tiso, which literally means excrement. His clothes are covered in manure. And so he's standing there in the presence of God, covered in the stench and the filth of somebody who had fallen in to a septic tank. we got to remember, guys, when we sin, we may sin against others. But more than that, as David points out in the psalm, I've sinned against God. And God is observing every part of our life and even when we fall. And there he calls it sin, filth, poo-poo clothes. He calls it the way it is. We often... We, you know, we, we try to, to soften the blow. You know, Colby Bryant now has been officially said that uh, he's going to be charged. And what do they charge him with? A sexual assault. That sounds better than rape. Now, I don't know if he did it or not, but we don't say rape. Because it sounds horrible. He raped somebody. Oh, boy, don't, don't say sexual assault. We don't want to say an adulterous, we say having an affair. We don't say the guy's drunk. We say he's, you know, having a, a chemical abuse problem or something. We, we try to change it for what it really is. In Isaiah, it says there that our righteousness before God is as filthy rags. And there it's a different word. It's the word ahid, which literally means menstrual flux. A tampon. 
you say, gee, Brian, I'm really glad I came to church today at this point. All this little caca mouth of yours, what are we going to do with you? Well, you know, it's, it's in the Bible there. And, and we've got to deal with it. Because so often we can say, oh, God, you know, I should have done a little better. And God says, uh-uh. <laughs> That's not repentance. That's not confession. You have sinned. Your sin is as iniquity. Your sin is filthy rags. And the way I look at filthy rags is, and there he gives his definition. I'll spare you from going into any more detail. Interesting, in Proverbs 30, verse 12, it says this, very fitting for our generation. It says, there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. And it's the same root word as the one here in Zechariah referring to its manure. It's still not cleansed from all of its manure. It's still there. We may try to put some perfume on it and try to move it around so it doesn't, you know, have big globs on it. But it's still very much there. The stench of it's there. But notice what happens there. So he's there in the filthy garments and the Lord's standing there, our Lord Jesus. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away those poo-poo clothes, those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So God says, take away those stinking clothes, get rid of them, and give him some brand new clothes. Now this is a beautiful vision. But you've got to understand, at this point, at this dispensation of time, the Hebrews wouldn't have got it. They would have said, how is that possible? How can such a thing be? And really, it's a prophecy looking to something that would yet happen in the future, and that's Jesus Christ, who would die upon a cross. You see, in the Old Testament, although it was veiled and they didn't understand it, they were looking to the cross of Christ. Their hope was one day the Messiah will come. One day the Messiah will make things right. One day the, the Messiah will come and save us. But they didn't understand Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22. They still don't understand it today about how the Christ would come and be the suffering servant who would take all our sin upon himself and pay for that sin. They didn't understand it. They don't understand it today. There's a veil over their eyes. But now after the cross, we don't look forward. We look backwards. We look back to the cross. And a matter of fact, the entire dating system of the world is based on this philosophy. We have B.C. before Christ. And we have A.D. after Christ. Now, the heathen of the world are trying to change it. B.C.E. before the common era. Just ask them, what's the common era? Uh, <laughs> there is no common era. You tell me a time when all men got together and, and agreed on something worldwide. It didn't happen, guys. There is no common error. They're just pulling your leg. It's before Christ. Christ came, and at a point in time, the whole world was looking before Christ to Christ, and then after Christ, they're looking back to his death. And we are right now standing 2,004 years after Jesus Christ. And 
So it's looking to that point in time. Isaiah, in, in Isaiah 61.10, he prophesied of this. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What are the rich robes that Jesus here is talking about? He's talking about his robes of righteousness. A verse you should definitely have memorized if you don't. This is your homework today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become, here it is, the righteousness of God in him. The rich robes are not just righteousness, it's actually Jesus' righteous robes. This is radical. We have a picture of this, though, in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember there in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, the prodigal son being rebellious says, Dad, come on, would you die? I can't keep waiting around this long. And the sooner you die, the better sooner I get the inheritance. And he said, can I go ahead and get it now? And Dad said, here's the inheritance. You're just going to be rebellious and not do any good around here. Here's the bag of money. He goes to a foreign country. You know the story. He spends all the money up. A famine comes. As soon as the money's gone, so is all his friends. He can't find a job. The only thing he can find a job is feeding pigs. And if you know about Jews and pigs, not very kosher. But it doesn't even hit the bottom there. He is wanting to eat the pig's food. He's envious of the pig's. But, you know, first day of work, boss looking over his shoulder. He can't eat some of the pig's food. And at that point, he wakes up saying, I wish I were a pig so I could eat some of this food right now. And he realizes, I've got to get back home. My dad, he's a gracious guy. He'll forgive me and at least make me a servant, a lowly servant or something. And, and so he's going home. And on his way home, he didn't understand that every day the father was looking from afar, waiting to see down that road, that shadowy profile of his son. And one day he saw him coming. And the only time we see God in the entire Bible ever in a hurry is in this story where he takes off running after his son. And there the son tries to get his little speech out. Sorry, Dad, I'm not worthy about it. He grabs him and he hugs him. And there he does. He puts the robe upon him. Puts the ring upon his finger. Puts the sandals upon his feet. And he says, go get everybody. We're going to have a great feast. My son who was lost is now found. My son who is dead is now alive. In the same way, Jesus Christ, by taking all your sins upon him and placing them upon the cross, he paid for your sins. Jesus, when he hung upon the cross, he said, it is finished. In the Greek, that is the word tetelestai. When somebody paid off their mortgage payment, that's what they would stamp on the outside of the document, tetelestai, paid in full. Your sins from first to last have already been paid for, the past sins and even the future sins. Think about it. When Jesus died on the cross, all your sins were yet in the future. But he paid for the sins of every single person who would ever live upon this planet. They've already been paid for, unfortunately, not everybody will confess their sin. Not everybody will by faith come and receive that forgiveness that's theirs to take. Jesus already paid for the, the price there. And we, Paul says this in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. Literally, it's the Greek word for dung. We're just a lot of doo-doo talk today. I, I don't know. Title of the sermon today, 
what the Bible says about doo-doo. I, I don't know. But <laughs> Paul says, I count all that stuff, all the religious stuff that I did, I count it as doo-doo, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, listen, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is from God by faith. In 1 John 3, he says, little children, I don't know what we're going to be, referring to when we get to heaven, but I know this, that when we see him, we shall be just like him. It's a radical thought to think we're going to be in heaven and have the exact robes of righteousness as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Truly, he has washed us with his blood and made us kings and priests unto our God. He's given us, as it says in Revelation 4.4 and Revelation chapter 7, white robes. And those white robes are of his righteousness. And there we see them put these garments upon them. And now it's been fulfilled in this day. We have that very experience as believers. And then he goes on in Zechariah, after the rich robes, and then he said... Let them put on a clean turban on his head. So he's totally changing it, and it's actually a turban renewal project. Turban renewal. Anyway, think about it. Yeah, I know. I, I thought it was funny. Turban renewal. Anyway, he got him a clean turban on his head. <laughs> so they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, you've got to understand a couple of things here. As you study Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, when the priest went to minister, he was actually symbolizing the holiness and the righteousness and the perfection of God. And the Bible goes an incredible length. When we study through those chapters, we have to spend a lot of time because there's chapters on them, how the priest had to make sure he was perfectly consecrated before he goes in to minister before the Lord. And for example, in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, were killed on the spot because they weren't consecrated to the Lord. And so when we look at this scene where Joshua, the high priest, is not consecrated, he's in filthy garments, that's a death sentence. And so Satan is pointing out, this guy should be zapped right this very second. And he was absolutely right. A matter of fact, it tells us in Exodus 28.2, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, for glory and for beauty. So when you were to look at Aaron in his priestly outfit, I'm not going to go into the detail, they're incredibly detailed. But you were to look at it, you were to see the glory of God and you were to see the beauty of God as you looked at these incredible garments. When you looked at the hat, <clears throat> his turban, as it after the, you placed the hat, it actually had a blue string that, that sort of came down, and on it was the writing, holiness to the Lord, and it sort of sagged, and it covered his forehead as well as part of the hat, and it said, holiness to the Lord. And so here his hat, the holiness to the Lord, it's filthy, maybe it's even gone, it's lost, he has to give him a new one. His garments, the priestly garments are, are filthy, they're, they're full of dung. And, and here he says, give him a new garment, give him a new hat. And again, it's clearly establishing, here is a new righteousness that I'm giving you. Here's a new holiness that I am giving to you. And that's how we receive it, by grace, as a gift. He who knew no sin became sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of Christ. It's given to us as a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, but it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And here is Joshua, guilty, but yet the Lord gives him the new hat of holiness. He gives him the new robes, rich robes, those robes of righteousness. And there uh, he stands now before the angel of the Lord, once again, perfected by Jesus. Well, look on there, if you would, in in verse 6. Then the angel of the Lord, Jesus, admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if, make a note there of that word if, if you will walk in my ways, and here it is again, if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. So he now says, here you are, you're renewed. We would use the term in the New Testament, born again. You're established in holiness. You're established in righteousness. You are 100% perfected before me. You're ready to go back in the place of ministry. And now he says, but there's something on your part that needs to change. There's something on your part that has to be different. And that is there has to be a different mindset that now you're going to walk in my ways. Now you're going to keep my command as Joshua had not been before. There was another Joshua, a great exhortation given to him. Remember Joshua right after Moses, the successor of Moses? And in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, he says this, Only be strong and very courageous. You've got to be brave to live a holy life. That you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left. That you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So be brave, Joshua, and don't turn to the right or to the left. Absorb your life in the word of God, and then you'll, as you hide God's word in your heart, you won't sin against him, and then you'll have prosperity, you'll have success wherever you go. Be strong, you've got to be brave. No coward can do this. You've got to be a warrior to live a holy life. And then he says, if you can do this, then you'll have that place. And I love that. In, in, in verse 7 he says, among these who stand here, looking at the saints of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Elijah, Joshua, Moses, all the saints are standing there. And Joshua, if you now will start walking before me in obedience, you one day also can be here with these very people. Now this is an important, important aspect. It's huge. Because you see, often people look at this picture of Joshua and they know this story. They may not know anything else about the Old Testament. They know this story. And in actuality, they're they're saying, this applies to me. That's me. I've sinned. I've blown it. And and you know what? It doesn't matter because all my filthy garments from this last week have been taken off and God's given me all new garments and I'm going to be right with him forever. He's done it. And I'll say this, it's absolutely true for some believers. 
But it's not true for some so-called believers. And it's important that you understand this difference. And I actually think the Apostle John in 1 John may have been thinking about this very passage when he wrote his epistle. Turn with, it, me, turn with me, if you would, <laughs> and let's look at 1 John together. Again, we're going to look at a number of passages and, and hopefully make this clear. 1 John, way back by the book of Revelation, just turn to the left a couple of pages. It says, this is the message which we have heard from him in verse 5, 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him, listen, there is no darkness at all. James says, no shadow of turning within him. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we have koinonia, intimacy, communion with him, and walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, a koinonia, a communion with him, and then, notice, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us and continues on cleansing us, it re reads in the Greek, from all sin. You see, there are people that, that say this, and it's not true. They, in their minds, think, oh, you know, I shouldn't give in to that sin. I should fight that sin. And then they think, nah, give in to it. God will just forgive me later. No big deal. And that's the way they live. They don't resist sin. They don't fight against the flesh. They just say, I'll do it now and I'll get forgiveness later. And it happens within our church. I've had a number of people tell me that had been raised in the Catholic church, and I'm sure there's not a huge percentage of Catholics that believe this, but I've had a number of them tell me that they had figured out the system, at least they thought they had, that basically they could sin all week, party hardy all Friday night, all day Saturday, and then, Saturday night, right before the midnight closing of the confessional booth, they would slide in, go into the confessional, confess to the priest all they've done, do a few Hail Marys, and then they're ready for church Sunday morning. And as soon as church was over Sunday, they started sending their head off all week, partied hardy Friday night, slide in Saturday. They, and they thought they had the system down. And there are people that have that same concept within our church and other Christian churches that basically say, I don't have to walk in the light as he is in the light. I can walk in darkness and still the blood of Christ is going to cleanse me from all sin. And guys, I'm here to tell you that is not the truth. That the forgiveness of God is not a license for you to sin. And if that is your heart's desire, I'll tell you as we look on here in 1 John, I do not believe you're born again. And I do not believe God's Holy Spirit lives in you. Notice here in verse 8 of 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So again, if you're saying, oh, well, I could have done better. No! You're a perverted, sicko, wicked person. You're a sinner. Call it for what it is. If you're willing to confess, I am a sinner. If you're willing to confess that, the word confess there in verse 9 is actually a legal term that just means to agree with. 
I agree with God. I'm not going to call it an affair. I'm going to call it adultery. I'm not going to call it a chemical uh, malfunction. I'm going to call it drunkenness or a drug addict. And it says there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and notice, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There it is. We have that picture. If our life is set not to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light as he is in the light, fellowship with Jesus, Joshua 3 is true, or Zechariah 3 is, is true for us. We are exactly like that. The blood of Christ is cleansing us and continuing to cleanse us from our sin. If we are those people that are trying to live for Christ and we stumble and we fall and we do, and we do it every day. The righteous man, it says in Proverbs, falls seven times. The righteous man also gets up seven times. So we all blow it. We all sin. But our life is geared to walk on that narrow road that leads to life. Our heart is to set to be in the light as he is in the light. Not to say, I'll play in the darkness and then I'll come over here and, hey, give me some light, Lord. Okay, so I can go play in the darkness some more. If that's your heart, you don't know him as we're going to discover. But not only is he going to cleanse you of that sin, but from all unrighteousness, give you brand new rags, brand new robes. I mean, brand new... Uh, a turban. That's what we say in the cool people. Rags. Go get some new rags. And uh, in verse 10 it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You need a psychologist if you think you haven't sinned. The problem is we all have sinned. And, and, and the reality is we've all sinned and continue to sin. And to not understand that, you're, you're out there. So I love that picture in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, where Jesus gets up from the supper table and puts on the robe and begins to wash the apostles' feet. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. And Peter said, well, not my feet only, Lord, my whole body. And Jesus says, I don't need to wash your whole body. You're already clean through the word that I spoke unto you, but not all of you, referring to Judas. So in John 15, he says, as Jesus speaks the word, that cleanses us. So when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you said, I am a sinner, but I believe that God loves me, sent his son for me, and that Jesus died in my place, shedding his blood, that I could be forgiven. He rose from the dead, conquering my sin. You're clean already. But what happens? As we walk through life, our feet get dirty, don't they? We get angry and we see things and we say things and we do things. And, and at the end of the day, oh, I'm, I'm just totally unclean. And the Lord says, no, just your feet. Let me wash them. And so the blood of Christ cleanses us and continues on cleansing us from our sin. And then he goes on to say in 1 John chapter 2. Now catch this. This is very important. 1 John chapter 2 there in verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Why is he writing these things to you? So you may not sin. Walk in the light as he is in the light. There's not even the shadow of turning him. There's no darkness at all. I'm telling you this so you understand that the forgiveness of sins where his blood cleanses you and keeps on cleanses you is those who are heading a life not to sin. So I'm writing to you that you will focus to live a life pure and holy before God that you would not sin. But of course, that's not practical. We're in sinful bodies and we fall, we stumble continually. So if anyone does sin though, 
We have an advocate. There's the word, a lawyer, the one who's interceding on our behalf with the Father who is our lawyer, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. He took all our sins upon him and paid the price. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. He did that for everybody. If they're willing to come, they can come and receive that forgiveness of sin. But now listen, in verse 3, he goes on. Now by this we know that we know him if... There it is. So you see the same type of picture there in 1 John chapter 1. And now in chapter 2, we see the same picture like the latter part of Zechariah 3. If now we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him. There's a lot of people that say they're Christians, don't they? And, and they live like the devil. A lot of businessmen will put little fish on their cards to deceive people. Trying to sucker in people to think they're Christians. So they'll hire them thinking they'll be honest. And so there's a lot of people that claim they know Christ. And, but, he goes on to say, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfect, perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought, must, himself, also walk just as he walked. So if you are a believer here today saying, I hate sin, I don't want to sin. When I do sin, it just grieves me. I don't want any part of it. I want to live a life just like Jesus walked in holiness and true righteousness and to live my life glorifying unto the Father. Jesus said, I always do the things that please the Father. That's my goal. That's my heart. That's my desire. Then guess what? The Zechariah chapter 3 passage is for you. But if you're here and you've just been toying with Christianity, you know enough just to get yourself in trouble. You've got a few little pieces and you hang out. But in reality, you say, oh God, forgive me. And then soon as you get on your own, soon as you're by yourself, soon as you're, you're off doing your own thing, you're going, oh man, I'm sending my head off here, but I don't want to get too far away because I don't want to get addicted to this stuff, but whoo, man, this is great. And then, oh, I'll run back. Oh, forgive me, God. Yeah, run back. Oh, that's your life. That's your heart. Let me tell you something. You don't know God. You may think you do, but you don't. Why? Look at First John chapter 3 now. He makes it plain right here. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. That was verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Now verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, look at, there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, the English language often breaks down because we don't have as many tenses as other languages. And the way this would read in the original, again, we try to have an original interpretation or translation here so they don't add to it. Some of the modern translations do. Some of the modern translations will say, have a life of sin. And that's literally what it is saying here, if you look in the Greek. So he's saying, whoever abides in him does not sin and continue on sinning. Whoever sins and continues on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. There it is. He makes it plain. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And there the word is now. You look in context. Practicing a life of righteousness. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned and then continued on sinning from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, listen, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
So whoever has been born of God does not sin and continue on sinning, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he's been born of God. This person cannot continue to live a life. Why? Because God's Holy Spirit is in him. The Bible says in Romans 8 that God's Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. Now I am willing to admit to you that I stumble and fall every single day. Every single day, something comes up. I get angry. I, I look at things or I say things. I, at the end of the day, I'm ashamed of myself. But often in the midst of it, when I stumble and fall, I'm just so grieved. I literally feel like somebody has just shot me with some poison right in my heart. I'm just literally grieved. And sometimes when I sin, I'm grieved like that for weeks. And I'll tell you what, it's a real cure to not want to sin again. Because you're just so sickened inside, and it's the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And so at the same time I'm sickened, I just say, thank you, Lord, that you live in me. But I'll tell you what, there's often times where I just start to take one step off that narrow road, and I am just so overcome with the grief of the Holy Spirit. I'm just like, oh, I can't go that way. I, I, I couldn't run that direction if I tried. Because I would be so doubled up with such a depression and such a, a grieving because I know that that's not what the Lord wants. And it's not just in my mind. It's in my spirit. And so a person who has the seed, the Holy Spirit living in them, cannot continue in that life of sin. Now, we stumble and fall every day. The righteous man falls seven times. Jesus said he'll forgive us 70 times seven daily. That's what he's asked us to do. How much more him? 700 times seven daily. So it's not a, 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 an issue of is God willing to forgive? The issue is, as it says in 2 Corinthians 13, you need to check yourself to see if you be in Christ. And don't use these scriptures here as a covering to live in your own will, in your own way. Many will come in that day saying, Lord, Lord, open up unto me also, referring to the pearly gates. And the Lord will say, many, many will come. And he'll say to them, be gone, you doers of iniquity. You're in filthy rags, man. You smell like poop. <laughs> you did not do my will. You did your own will. You didn't do my will. Jesus says, why do they say, Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? That's ridiculous. You say, yes, boss, and then you do your own thing. He's not really your boss then. And so the, the, the point comes back again here of making that clear. That this kind of forgiveness that we see where God's cleansing us and washing us is for true believers people who are truly trying to live a life of holiness and purity before their God. And then one last verse there in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 21. Notice he says there, little children, he doesn't say to all you pagans out there in the world, he's talking to the believers, he's talking to the Christians, keep yourself from idols. Fight the good fight of faith and don't allow the master passions of this world that overcome you. It's what he's saying. Don't, don't get taken down by the cravings of your flesh or by the, the enticement of the world's system that Satan's built around you. Don't allow any idol to come in your heart. Make sure Jesus is number one in your life. Well, back in Zechariah chapter 3. So he gives this beautiful heavenly picture of cleansing, which I enjoy every day and many of you enjoy every day. 
of how the Lord is for you. He has chosen you. you there's absolute 100% confidence before God because you know what your life's about because you are trying to walk in his ways and to keep his commands. And he says, you will be a judge in my house. The Bible says in Matthew 25 and Luke 19, because you've been faithful and little, now I'm going to give you much. You've been faithful and little, now I'm going to put you over ten cities, referring to that millennial reign. In 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, if we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. In Revelation 2.26, he says, he who overcomes, keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. And so he's giving him the, the, the saying that you will be a king and a priest. You will be a judge in the coming kingdom, in, in the courts. And you're going to have freedom just like the other men who have been approved before you who are now standing here with me. I am, present tense, he says to Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there he's saying, I am, presently with these guys who will be honored for all of eternity because they endured to the end, fighting the good fight, living a life before me. And then in verse 8, Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who set before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For you behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. This is a clear messianic title of Jesus. Look this up on your own because of time's sake. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 33, verse 15, a very familiar passage, John chapter uh, 5. But then also there in Zechariah chapter 6, turn there just a, a page over if you would. He says to speak to him saying, uh, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, he says there, Then speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. In Isaiah 53, it says just that very thing is a little tiny branch shooting up. From this place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And so Jesus in that millennial reign is going to come and he's going to branch out and he's going to cover the entire earth with his branch and we are all connected into it and a fruitfulness that this earth has never seen will be throughout the world. And it, as a clear picture, as you read Isaiah 11, you'll see it's in that millennial reign that that takes place. And then also in Zechariah verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, he says, And behold, the stone that have I have laid, I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Seven is the number of completion. Uh, matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of the God. So if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that seven-year tribulation period, seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars. And he goes on and gives uh, seven trumpets, seven angels, seven thunders. Seven is the number of completion. I'm completed. This is the end of the, end of the time on earth as you know it. And the seven eyes referring uh, in the ancients to knowledge. In other words, he's seen past what the outward man, God looking upon the heart. And the stone is a very familiar title of the Lord. You remember that in, in Daniel uh, chapter 2? That vision where um, he sees the image, the head of gold and the chest of bronze and the uh, stomach and thighs of silver and the legs of iron and then the feet iron mixed with clay and then all of a sudden a, a rock, a stone comes from God not made with hands and crushes the image, makes it go into powder and then the rock covered the entire earth referring to Jesus in that millennial reign. 
And we have a number of passages on that. Remember in Psalms 18, the stone with the the builders rejected was the chief cornerstone. In Isaiah 8, he says, I am a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that's quoted again in the, the New Testament and the, the book of Romans is and uh, saying, Jesus says, don't let me be the stumbling block to you, referring to the religious people. Jesus wasn't religious. He bummed out the religious people and they're the ones who... Uh, manipulated the whole situation to have him killed. In 1 Corinthians 10.4 it says, and that rock was Christ. In Matthew 21 and also in Luke 20, remember that story where Jesus talking to the Pharisees, they were all mad at him and he says, let me tell you a story. And There's a guy who made a vineyard, built a wall around it, got it all set, gave it to some guys to run it and then he himself went away. It was one of many businesses established and when it came time to get of the produce, the servant said, get out of here, he told this man's servants, and then he sent some away, killed some, beat up some. Finally, the guy said, I'm going to send my son. Truly, Surely they'll respect my son. When they saw the son coming, they said, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill this guy, and we won't hear from this guy anymore. And they killed the son. And it says the Pharisees realized they were talking, that Jesus was talking about them. And they were so angry they wanted to kill Jesus because the multitude thought he was a prophet or something. They were afraid of the multitude. But then Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says this, Fall upon the rock that you will be broken. Lest that rock one day falls upon you and crushes you to powder. Right now the stone is there, the rock is there, and it's for you to humble yourself and be broken over your sin and be humbled if you would, humiliated if you would. Be broken into pieces, be broken over your sin. Don't care what anybody else thinks, only what God thinks. If you don't humble yourself, if you don't call sin, sin, if you don't repent of your wicked ways, one day that rock is going to crush you to powder. The Bible says when we stand before God, not one person on the earth will have an excuse before God. Creation itself is a good enough message to know that they weren't right in harmony with God, the maker of this world, or the world itself. And he finishes up here in Zechariah by saying this, Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. When Jesus comes to earth and we come with him, he lands upon the Mount of Olives, and one day the whole earth is going to be renewed. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. If you've studied through the Minor Prophets, you know this Jewish expression saying, a time of peace and prosperity and blessings. And God is saying, in that day when the Lord rules this earth with a rod of iron, you'll finally be at peace and at rest. And let's pray.